And this morning, uh, if, if I would give a title to my message, it would simply be called Amazing Grace. Right? Plain and simple, but amazing grace. And our text this morning is in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul's letter to Timothy, who, who was trained and he watched by Paul, and Paul was encouraging him as a young pastor, and he's just uh, giving him these, these orders, if you will, commands, instructions of how he ought to lead as a, as a young person in the faith who's leading and taking leadership role among God's people. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 7. And before I read that, I just want to let you know that as Paul is writing this letter to his friend Timothy, his son in the faith, if you will, and he led this church in the city of Ephesus, and he thought it was valuable while he's writing this letter, he thought it was so important to write to Timothy his own personal testimony for everyone to know. For everyone to know. And he did this He did this not to show how bad he was before Jesus got a hold of his life, but rather how good God is. That's why he did it. You know, if you read verses 8 through 11, I will not do that for the sake of time, but I'll simply summarize very briefly what Paul says there. And what he says there, he shows that that the law has power to expose both sin and sinners. In verses 8 through 11, he really does that. He shows, and Paul writes about that in, in, in Romans as well, but that the law exposes sin and the sinners, those who violate the law, and they're guilty of that. And Paul writes all about that in Romans. And then in verse 12 to 17, he turns to his story after sharing how the law exposes sin and the sinner to show God's amazing grace. Paul's testimony, if you know it, and if you read about it, a lot of you are familiar, is nothing short of miraculous. I'm going to highlight at least five different aspects of God's grace in his life so that we might see this morning all over and fresh again how amazing it is in our own lives as well. So read with me in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12 through verse 17. I'm reading from the New American Standard. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, and a a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. And yet, I was shown mercy, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant, with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Oh man, it's, I love that. that just, it's more than abundant. Verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement. You can bank on it. Deserving full acceptance, you should take it to the bank and deposit it there. And it will bring you all, reap you all kinds of interest and dividends and you'll benefit from it. I'm adding, but, but that's what he's saying here. It is a trustworthy Worthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all, or I am the chief of sinners, right? And yet, for this reason, I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. 
Then he wraps it up and says this. Now to the king eternal, the king, I'm adding that word, but it's in the same line of thought. To the king eternal, to the king immortal, to the king invisible, to the king who is the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's Paul's story in a nutshell. And so we look and we realize and we see, we begin with that first aspect of of God's grace and Paul's life and our life and how amazing it is and we should be amazed all over again today is that when you start to reflect it, when you look at Paul's story and your own story and maybe your story that is yet to happen in your experience with God, first notice that there's that God is the provider of grace. That Jesus, that Christ, that grace comes through Christ. God had it set up that way, if you will. And the first thing that we need to understand about grace is where it comes from. It finds its source in Jesus as we find Paul thanking him for what he has done in his life. In verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. He's given me the strength. And he goes on. And then he lists everything. I am thanking Christ Jesus our Lord. I give him the praise. He's the provider, the source, the the one who initiates and gives me and pours out that grace upon me. You know, it's a beautiful thing. Because if we study grace and we've heard many sermons and we've heard many thoughts and nuances and we've heard all kinds of ideas that are conveyed even in Greek and uh, what grace is, what God's grace is, but... When used in the original language, when you, you start to tear apart the Greek, there is something that's, that's really powerful. We'll get to that in a second. But it's that idea. The, even the Greek, it gives us that word. It's the idea of a free gift. How many of you like free gifts? I mean, whether you think they're good or not, or they're valuable, but if something is given to you freely, but especially if it's something you need or like, oh man, you, you love it. And that's the thing about the word that we, that we have and this, and this grace that comes. And there's this idea there. And, and at its root, this grace of God at its root, or, and, and that goes deep. And part of that understanding of what grace is, it has the concept of joy attached to it. Grace has joy attached to it. And that's what blows my mind, and I feel like I'm going to be going off. I mean, and something's going on inside of me anyway lately, but, but I mean, listen, church, listen, when we get here on a Sunday morning, and I am not here soliciting, and I am not here to manipulate, and I've said this before, and we've said this before, I'm not, we're not here to do that. It's not an emotional appeal, it's not all it is, but it's a spiritual one. Because joy should be the root of that grace that we know, that love, that goodness, that favor of God. And it should call, when we get together, it should be something that is just, I mean, I don't even know how to put it into words. It should be that way. And yet, I'm not pointing you out because you know who you are, but I will say, if you come in here and if you can sing through, and I, you know, whatever you feel or think about silent music or words, if you can sing through a song and if you just stay the same and there's not that joy that's there in your heart that rises up because you realize how great God's grace is towards you, that you're here in the first place with God's people, for crying out loud, who are also redeemed, and you can raise up a voice and you're joining all of heaven who is constantly worshiping God. That concept alone should just make you 
I don't know, if you have to come to the altar, come and lay down and just be blown away in God's presence. If you've got to shed a tear because you're overwhelmed with joy, tears of joy of how good God, let it be so. But anyway, the point here is, in this nuance, there's this beautiful thing in this, it, that we have to get a hold of and understand that if we truly understand grace and to know grace, we will know that at the root of the concept of grace is joy. If you've received it, you know it. And you can't contain it. And you can't help but to try to explain that even though you'll fall short, you will keep doing that. You will keep doing that. You know, it's a delight to receive something you don't deserve. It's even more, well, it should be even more, if I can use the word, I'll be fun Right? To give something to someone in this way that they don't deserve. Should be a lot more of that going on. The, the, the theological thing here about grace, it, it speaks of God's loving forgiveness, right? I mean, that's part of his forgiveness. Forgiveness is also attached to this. It speaks of God's loving forgiveness, which he gives freely to those deserving, and you know this, only condemnation and judgment. And then he transfers them. He transfers them from the kingdom of darkness to light, from death to light, to life, without any worthiness on their part. And based on nothing they have done or even failed to do, but God gives it. That is an amazing thing to be forgiven, even though you don't deserve it. And you, you, you should really pay for all that we've done. And we know that Jesus paid that price. That's the gospel. The Bible repeatedly affirms that Jesus Christ, along with God the Father, right, working together, the Trinity, is alone the source of all grace. I can point you to scriptures in the Gospel of John, in Romans, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in Ephesians, through all the epistles, throughout the scriptures, I can show you over and over again that God alone, that Jesus is the source of all grace. Paul, when you look at our scripture, it's really interesting, and I just, even though my points are not alliterative, I will give you these in, with, 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 the, sorry, with the letter E because it's really important to point out. If you have a notebook or you're noting this, write it down. There's four aspects of God's grace in Paul's life that he gives thanks for right here in our text. First, he thanks God for his electing grace. You know, that God was always conscious and had a plan to choose Paul. Well, he was Saul, but Paul, God saw him, he knew him, and in his grace, both for salvation and apostleship, there's this electing grace that he is thankful for right here in our text. Secondly, he's thankful right here that gratitude is there and that joy is there, that there is this enabling grace that God gives him, not just electing grace, that God chose him out of his grace and he didn't deserve it, but God chose him anyway. But he enables him now and he empowers him. When Paul in his own strength can't do squat, God says, I'm giving you my power. I'm giving you my grace. My spirit is in you. And you're going to be propelled forward. You're going to be compelled by my love and moved and motivated by my grace. And, and, and one, one word is translated into who has given me strength, one translation. And literally empowered me, he says there. He is, I thank God he's empowered me. And it's the same word that is used in Philippians 4.13 where he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The Greek word is who empowers me. 
He empowers me as grace. And thirdly, he thanks him for entrusting grace. Think about this. God is so gracious, and it's not, we can't wrap our minds around this. But, and even for us, that God trusts us with the gospel. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Paul, for who he was, that he entrusts the gospel. He entrusts him. He gives us this job, this, this office, this position. He is an apostle of the church of Christ, of Jesus Christ. And he is going on and God considers him faithful and trustworthy after everything Paul had done? Paul's like, I'm just grateful that he, that grace and trust was, he entrusts me. And it was grace that Paul that, that, that did this for Paul. And he and Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25, Paul describes himself as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think that's the only way I can even try to say that I'm trustworthy with what he's called me to. By the mercy of God, by his grace. And lastly, he points out, if you read that text, you can read into it, and it's there. He says that he is thankful to God for his employing grace, right? It's the grace that didn't just call him and entrust the work to him, but now puts him into service. That grace puts him into work to be an apostle and to declare the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what Paul is doing here and raising up leaders like Timothy, and he's thanking God for that. There was a Greek writer in history. His name was Plutarch. And Plutarch tells us that when a Spartan won a victory in the Greek games, they were intense, right? There's a thing that they do, they've been doing, it's called the Spartan race. They go through obstacles and they crawl and they have they mud, they climb. They, they're like, they come out bloodied sometimes and bruised to the end. They try to get to the end and they have these races around the country, right? The Spartan race. It was this grueling the obstacle course they go through. And, and they, the Spartans were known for being pretty tough, and strong, and, and they could endure like almost anything. But when a Spartan won a victory in the Greek games, his reward, listen to his reward. Plutarch wrote this. His reward that he might, was that he might stand beside his king in battle. Oh, man. I'm not even going to get into all the... But think about that. That's my reward that I am going to lock arms with my king and go to battle with him. Um, that I could stand right next to him and fight with him. That he would choose me. That's what Paul's doing here. That's a great illustration of what service what Paul was called to. And each of us as believers enjoy from God's employing grace. What we do in service is to stand with the Lord. That's what we do. We don't stand on our own. It's all because of what Jesus did. All because of his grace. And now... We're right by his side, and he never leaves us. He never lets us down. Let's not let him down. Let's stay locked arms with him. And like the Spartan, Paul sought no honor for himself, and neither should we. Paul's pattern of grace was Jesus. That was Paul's pattern of grace. And, and, and Jesus told him in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you. Grace. Amazing grace that comes from God Himself. Secondly, notice this aspect of grace that we should look at Paul's life and in our own lives and just be and marvel. Verse 13 shows us the power of grace. We know the source of grace is Jesus, is God Himself, but verse 13 shows us the power of grace. 
The grace of God was vividly just speaking out and, and running across his mind over and over because of his past. Clearly and sharply and brightly. Because as a great sinner, he needed great grace. Before he met Christ, a lot of you know this story, some of you may not. Paul, who at the time was called Saul, hunted down Christians and he did all that he could to persecute the church. In fact, his goal was nothing short of the complete extermination of what the book of Acts calls the way. That's what the early believers were called. They were people, they got together, they were of the way. This new way. This was, this was the first church getting up. They were following the teachings of Christ and the early disciples and after Pentecost and the, this, this gospel is being laid down, doctrine is being laid down and they're following the way and Paul is out to destroy them. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, Luke describes Paul as, Saul at the time, as breathing out murderous threats against believers. It's intense. It's dark. It's evil. It's as if he lived and breathed to destroy what he considered to be the enemy. And it was like a war horse who sniffed the smell of battle and is rearing and ready to go. He was a frightening, violent adversary to the church, to to the early Christians, and a callous, pious, self-righteous, bigoted murderer, hell-bent on a full-scale inquisition. Listen. Listen to how he later described his behavior to Agrippa after he was saved. He realized who Jesus was, the one he was persecuting. And now he's on trial for preaching the gospel and and advancing the kingdom of God. And in Acts chapter 26 and verse 19, 9 to 11, he stands before, before Agrippa. And this is what he says. I have to read this to you. Acts chapter 9, 26, verses 9 to 11. I'm there. I can flip quick. 26, 9 to 11. This is what the word of God says and records. I'm getting there. Here we go. Here we go. So, so then I thought to myself that I, had to do, that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. He was all for it. And as I punished them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. He chased them. He wanted them done with. And he's explaining this, and he's not bragging about it. He's just telling how amazing his story is to Agrippa and that he was part of this process and how God changed his life through Jesus Christ, his son. In the middle of his wretchedness, He was met with God's compassion. It was God's grace extended. Now you might ask, when you read that scripture, Paul also says that he did these things in ignorance because he he didn't believe, right? What does Paul's ignorance have to do with his salvation? Is ignorance an excuse before God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Read, read Romans. Paul's writing in Romans. Absolutely not. Read Galatians. Read it. Absolutely not. Paul is saying that there is nothing, when he talks about what he did and how he was 
a violent man, an aggressor, and even to Timothy here, in just a short couple phrases, he says that to him. He wasn't saying that to say, like, look how bad I was, man. Look how bad I was. You know, sometimes in the past, you may have experienced this. And you know what? It may have its place in time, and there are places and times for it. But you don't glorify the sin over the one who saves you from the sin. And sometimes in our testimonies, as some would testify, they might share stories of 40 minutes of how disgusting and salacious details and whatever their life was, and then five minutes at the end, but Jesus saved me, and I'm a new person now. You know, it should be reversed. It should be, let me tell you about what it was in like five minutes, and then spend 40 minutes telling you about all that Jesus has done in my life and who I am now. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul's actually saying, just because I was ignorant, and by the way, ignorance spiritually and our lack of knowledge and knowing what is right comes from unbelief. They're connected. When you don't believe and you don't obey, you don't believe that there's a God, you, don't, you disregard His law, you could care less for His standard, you don't care. You're, you're, you're ignorant, but that's not an excuse for your behavior and for your sin. And Paul is taking ownership, if you will. He, he knows he's responsible for his sin. He sinned. He was a sinner. And Paul's saying there's nothing chic or glamorous about what he had done. He wasn't saying that. Because everything he did, it was grounded in his unbelief, and frankly, it was stupid. He wasn't glorifying the sins of his past. But you know what? He didn't hide them either in the right places. And neither should we. Because they'll always point back to the great grace of God that saved us. We should. The Apostle Paul was responsible for his sin. He received mercy and forgiveness because he believed the truth when he was finally faced with it. And let me tell you, the way he was faced with it, oh, riding on that road to Damascus, oh, he got, he got, he was, he faced it. Jesus himself, why are you persecuting me? The whole point of this is to show that the grace of God is powerful enough to redeem the worst sinner who is willing to repent. To turn away from their sins. To recognize that they need Jesus. Look at verse 14. And what Paul says in verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Oh, that's great mercy and grace. And it saved him. Paul knew, Paul understood the power of grace in his life. Who he was and who he was, and, and who he was at that moment. Thirdly, another aspect of this grace that Paul was grateful for he showed and he shared how profuse God's grace is. Not just how powerful, but how much of it there is. It just never stops. It just keeps going and going and going and going. It'll outgo the Energizer Bunny over and over and over again. In fact, this is the only place in the text we read this morning that the word grace appears in our passage. Yet it permeates Paul's thoughts from the beginning to the end of our text. Abundant sin gives way to the more abundant grace from the Lord. Paul adds the word, and he's and, and, and in Greek, and, and when, if you study the scriptures, he adds the word hooper to the word translated abundant. He did this often, and it adds intensity and extra force to a concept of truth that he gives. Our English word hyper comes from that word hooper in Greek. Now, what does hyper mean? Mm. 
Yes, you have, you have visions in your head, right? Some of you. Right? And, and we, we speak of hyperactive people. Wait, wait, wait. Not just kids. People. <laughs> hyperactive people. Or we speak of, unfortunately, too much today, hypersensitive people. We speak of hyper... We can go on and on and on. That word, more than normal, is what it means. It's above and beyond. It's, 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 it's trending toward an extreme, right? And so he talks about this grace being abundant. It is hyper grace. I am glad that it's hyper grace. I'm glad that it's overactive. I'm glad that it's, frankly, even oversensitive to, with compassion to where we are, if I could express it that way. And, and it meets us where we're at. That's how, how deep and how compassionate, how forgiving all that concept is with that, that goodness and the favor of God that is grace. Paul expresses the facts with amazing, if you will. He's so precise in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 to 21, and you can check that out when you have a minute. But let me tell you, there is no conceivable accumulation of sin that grace cannot overflow or overcome. I want to read that again because I don't know if you get it. And joy should just be like inside of you. Let me read it again. Grace, there is no conceivable accumulation of sin that grace cannot overflow or overcome. There is no dam of sin that grace can't overcome. Not God's grace. That's how it is in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. Grace increases the more we need it, and there is always more to follow because it can't be exhausted, and it's always greater than our sin. We sing about grace that's greater than our sin. The abundance of grace is always linked with its visible expressions, you know, faith and love. Faith and love are always there. And hearts like Paul's, they were previously, Paul's heart was filled with unbelief. It's now filled with faith. It was filled with hatred, and now it's filled with love oh it's a hyper grace may we understand know and experience god's hyper grace and then ourselves be hyper in our grace giving as well in our grace living amen fourthly we see another aspect of grace because we see the purpose of grace in verses 15 to 16 in our text that paul writes about here is a trustworthy worthy statement that deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. In fact, this is, I mean, this is incredible. It doesn't end. Again, I, I'm getting ahead of myself with the previous point, but it's, it, it, this There's so much of it, and you find it in this purpose, and this purpose is this, that Jesus came to save sinners. It's all because of grace. Grace, grace, grace. And Paul says, if he can save me, he can save anybody. Right? We find in this scripture one of the most carefully worded summations of the gospel message in the entire Bible. It's a trustworthy statement. And evidently, and and even other passages where Paul uses a similar expression, it's like a catechism, right? That people were trained to memorize and apply to their lives. 
This is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. Just tell yourself that every day. Remind yourself that Jesus came to save sinners, a sinner like me, because of His grace. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Paul understood where he came from and who he was in Christ. The depth of sin, and then he knew the height of salvation. You'll notice that he said, after years after his salvation experienced, he said, he didn't say, I was the worst. He said, I am the worst. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that that's his identity? No, but he knows, and that's the wisdom of a a, a regenerate heart that understands who they are in Christ. Right? He's having, and, and, I, and I often wonder, and I know others have wondered. I've read even theologians, different people, pastors, other Christians in conversation. You wonder if Paul is having, when he starts to think about what he did, if he's having like this guilt trip. Like, his con, like something there still comes up again. He feels so bad for what he did prior to Jesus Christ. And it comes up again, and, and, and he fights it off, you know, but he does. But he, he's reminded, I was the worst sinner, and if God can save me, he can save you. Look what I used to do to Christians. Oh, man. And again, and, and he realizes who he was pre-Christ, pre-grace, if you will. And now because of Christ and because of his grace, who he is. Saving faith never gives one a sense of superiority. It doesn't do that. And this is the thinking of a healthy, regenerate heart. I'm the chiefest of sinners. Does that mean that you did the worst things more than anybody else? No, you don't know that. It just means you know that you're, you're prone. You're, there's, you're, you can sin and you were a sinner before Christ. And that's always there crouching at the door if you are ready to, to spring into action. And because of the grace of God, He keeps you. And having this attitude breeds humility and gratitude. It should. Some today, they might try to correct Paul's self-image and restore his self-esteem. Paul was probably the healthiest person that you would ever come across when we talk about spiritually, mentally, and emotionally because he knew who he was in Christ and what Christ has done in his life. He is the healthy one here with an accurate view of who he was and what Christ had done. I'm afraid to tell you who I am because if I tell you who I am, you may not like who I am and and that's all I have. Have you ever felt that way or thought that way? Yes, I'll read that again because we can fall prey to that. I'm afraid to tell you who I am because if I tell you who I am, you may not like who I am and that's all I have because it's who I am. And then we stay trapped and we, get, we spin circles in our head, in our heart, in our mind. And, and Paul says this is a true saying and everyone should believe it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I was the worst of them all. How can someone reveal such a thing? And the answer to that question is crucial because it points to the only real source of healing for and freedom from the inner anguish that so many people live with. And this morning, we're getting someplace because maybe you're living like that this morning. 
Maybe you are. There's something not right inside of you and you're unsettled and you're restless or you're in a dark place or you're in a place and you feel like you just, I've done so much and you're saying things to yourself. There's no way God can love me and God's grace isn't enough. And does he know what I've really done? Does he know what I've said? Does he know the attitudes I harbor in my heart? Does he know that? Maybe there's someone here like that this morning. Listen, there's, a, there's this kind of I want to make sure I, I wrote this down and I typed this out, so I want to make sure that I say this so I'm not misunderstood that's clear. But there's a kind of vicious cycle that keeps people from finding peace in their heart. All right? Just follow along. Just give me your attention. Apart from God's healing grace, we can never get away from what might be described as an inner prosecuting attorney with a condemning spirit. Can't. The fear that people would not like us if they really knew who we are does have a basis in reality. It is true, as Scripture points out, that none of us measures up fully to God's standard and His good design for our lives. It's true. In fact, it even, gets even worse. We do, in fact, subvert if you will, our own best intentions. It's how ugly it is in there sometimes. And then that inner voice begins to accuse us and we're likely to hide a bit deeper within. And then the inner accusations, they gain more strength. And then we, we hide even more. All of us have ways to cope with this situation. And you know what we do? This is why I'm carefully reading my notes here. We develop a persona, if you will. It's a way of presenting ourselves to the world. It's a way of presenting yourself to other believers, to the church. And when you come Sunday morning or when you walk into the office or when you join that Zoom meeting, whatever it is, you, 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 you present a persona. The me you see is not 100% the me that I know. And there's a... It's, it's, please, me, don't misunderstand me. There's a reasonableness to this. And we have to be careful. How we, I'm not suggesting you just spill your beans all over the place and just go crazy. I'm not saying that. Stop pretending. Stop hiding. Stop not tapping into the grace of God and be free from all this stuff. Some persons have a critical persona, which is critical of everyone and everything. You know what that does? You know what that does? That protects them from their own inner person that they are secretly and persistently critical of. Others have a savior persona, which wants to save and take care of everything and everyone. And the Savior persona is meant to protect the inner person from people thinking badly of him or her. How can anyone not like someone who is always helping others or saving the day? Right? And I'll give you one more. One of the more difficult personas is the negative persona. The negative persona sees everyone and everything in such negative terms that the inner person, that person's soul, their spirit, it f feels more at home 
Let me explain. It's not so bad that I'm so bad if everyone else is so bad. That makes sense? Look, here's the reality. We need each other. We have resources. We can encourage each other. We can push each other to think the right way and to behave the right, to do the right thing. We should encourage each other to submit to God. Listen, therapy can help. All right, let me just... But, big capital B-U-T, only God's grace can heal. End of story. You want to debate and talk about that? I'll, I'll, I'll do that because it's biblical. Only God's grace can heal. Take this to heart this morning. Because God knows you for who you really are, and He loves you regardless of who you are in His love, right? And yes, if you're a child of God, there's, there's a covenant love. It's, it's a little different. I have to say, it's a little different. Aspects of it, right? But He loves you regardless. You can break free of that inner persecution inner persecuting attorney and from the attitudes and expectations of others if the lord god of this universe knows you he loves you redeems you then there is no one to fear i don't suggest there's no process i don't suggest we'll learn i don't suggest suggest that there's sanctification that play it all does it's all part of the process it's a process but there's no one to fear because god knows you and you let it all down and you give it to god and this is beautifully expressed by paul in the in his letter to the romans he says who will bring any charge against those whom god has chosen it is god who justifies He makes you right with Himself because of the grace He gives you to have faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He did on the cross. Forgiveness. Washing all that stuff away and out of your life. Who is He that condemns? Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. There is no condemnation for those who are on Christ Jesus. Paul says in our text that the reason God did all this was for him to be an example for others. When he said he was the worst or the foremost or the chief of sinners, he wasn't looking for accolades or pious pats on the back. He didn't wear it as a badge of honor. He was simply telling it like it is. You know, maybe you've heard this. I've had people tell me this. God couldn't save me. I'm too bad. I've done too much. I'm, I'm too dirty. I mean, the things I've done, God will never forgive me. And there's so many repercussions and consequences because of it. There's no way God will do that. This passage remains. You know what Paul said? The worst sinner has already been saved. So you don't have that excuse. That's how great God's grace is. In fact, this guy was so bad and his conversion was so dramatic and unbelievable that the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts thought it was just a trick to lower defenses. Was it a Trojan horse? Is he a Trojan horse? But it was real and stands as an example for all other people ever since he was shown mercy so that all who believe on Jesus would receive eternal We could also find, I guess, a secondary application, if I could put it that way here, to show that Paul was saved in this dispensation of grace, this time of God's grace being poured out, and that his conversion marked a change in how God was dealing with mankind, and he was setting Israel, frankly, aside for a season. 
Paul is not one of the 12 apostles. Disciples, I should say. And apostles. And is in fact called the apostle to the Gentiles. Some say that this passage points to the beginning of the body of Christ as taking place with conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who was later renamed Paul. But anyway, in any case, his life was like a model with a sign hanging on it that read, this is what a life looks like when it's shaped by the grace of God. Look at me. God's grace has shaped me. He's made me who I am, and I'm thankful for who He's made me. And it could be your life. Do you want that? Let me ask you something this morning. Do you know that God is working in you so that others can see His handiwork? And you never know who's watching. So here's the thing. Let God's amazing grace shine through. And that leaves us with one last thing. Paul leaves us with this. This aspect of grace is that grace always causes you to praise God. There's praising here. There's an expression of praise for God's grace in verse 17. And I love how Paul writes this. Well, it's the Word of God. He says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. How do you sum it up? You just say, Let all the praise be to this God who blows my mind, who's bigger than me, who's greater than me, who treats me like I don't deserve to be treated, who withholds those things that I do deserve. And He's just an amazing God. And He goes on and He says, with this exuberant doxology, and He writes into this, And he he talks about the work of God in personal and imminent terms, if you will, of God's amazing grace. And it's a declaration of praise to God. To the King Eternal, the Sovereign of the universe before creation, after creation, to the final ages, and even in the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes back down to reign, it's written on Him and on His thigh and on his, on his, on his, uh, his robe, it's written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords in Revelation chapter 19. That's the God that He's serving. The King of grace, the King of love, the King of glory is coming down. And He's the King immortal to the one true God who is not subject to decay or destruction and is absolutely imperishable and incorruptible be honor and glory forever and ever. He's not like the man-made idols that are around us that you have to always keep reshaping or touching up or making them all fresh and new again and making in your own image. God doesn't change. He doesn't change. He'll never die. He's immortal. But He's also the King and the God who's invisible to Him who lives in unapproachable light. Paul writes in Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16, whom no one has seen or can see be honor and glory forever and ever. Oh, you can know Him, but one day we'll see Him face to face. No one has seen Him yet. He's invisible, but He's all around us. We, every night we remind ourselves, we thank God and we praise God that even though we don't see Him, He's real and He's with us. He is invisible, but He's still the King of kings. And He's the only God. The King who's the only God in Greek. He's the monotheo. He is the Lord, and there is no other. There is one God. The I am that I am, to Him be the honor and glory forever and ever. Paul knew when he received the Savior, Jesus gave His righteousness to him. And and His experience of mercy, grace, love, and faith, and ministry drove him to his knees. And this conviction is the same reality that should drive you and me. God has saved me. 
And if He can do that in my life, He can do it for anyone. I believe with all my heart. I believe that with all my heart. And no one on this earth, no one on this earth or anything on this earth is beyond God's amazing grace reaching them. This morning, before we pray, God is extending His grace. Maybe there's someone here this morning and you're saying, man, you know, I, I've had these thoughts and like, I believe in God and I, I know He exists, and, but I just, I never really received that grace and I don't know it for myself. I, I, I know He exists and I, I've asked Him to forgive me, but I don't know if I, I don't know, I'm not sure. Well, you can know for sure that when you ask God to forgive you because of what Jesus did and to wash away your sins by faith and you confess that you're a sinner, God's grace abounds. It is profuse. And He doesn't take it back. He gives it to you and He washes you clean. Maybe that's you this morning. And you need to come forward this morning and just bow on your knee before this altar and say, you're, the, you're an amazing God. You're the, be the King of my heart. We were singing about that. Be the King of my, God, my heart. You're the gracious God. Rule and reign. And, I, and drive away all those things. And don't worry about those personas you have to project. You be you and God will make you be who He wants you to be. Come as you are and receive his grace. It's awesome. Will you give him reign? Will he be king of your heart and your life this morning? Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you are a believer and you know what? You know that, but you've taken it lightly. You, you, it's, you've gotten to the point that you know, and you, every day you tell, thank you for your forgiveness, God. Thank you for your grace every day. But you're still, but you play with it. You take it lightly. You're just kind of like, you almost take it as a free license to, to just be relaxed in your spiritual experience and your journey. And as a result of that, that grace of God is not coming out of you the way God wants it to be coming out. Don't cheapen it. You can spend some time this morning too. Come, receive that grace all over again and be reminded how awesome that grace of God is just like Paul was saying. If God can save me, He can save anyone. If God can can give me His grace to employ me in His service, He'll give it to us all over again this morning. Would you take that step? If you want this morning to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you want your sins forgiven, and you want to know for sure once and for all, and have His grace just fill your life, would you call out to Him? Would you come to the altar? Would you ask Him to be your Lord and Savior, rule in your life as King, and wash away your sin? He will. That's how gracious He is. Amen. God bless you. Go in the grace of God. Share God's grace. And, and, and just be joyful in His grace. Amen.